So Chris, I've gotten some listener feedback and they don't seem to like the helium. I think we should maybe move on from that idea. Oh man, we spent a lot of money on that helium too. We thought that would be a great way to just pack more content into a shorter runtime. It was a solid idea, but not everything survives contact with reality, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think we'll have to scrap it. Maybe we'll try it again some other time. We'll sneak it in and see if anybody notices. I think once the Alvin and the Chipmunks movie comes out, maybe it'll have more mainstream acceptance. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Oh man. Thank you everybody who did give us some grace on that one. It was just an accident. Everyone was very understanding. I can attest to editing while traveling is the worst. You're often in a rush. There's probably less than ideal conditions for you to edit in, probably less than ideal sound conditions too. And um, those things happen. You know, you got to get them out of the way. If you get a couple of those within the first 50, I think you're doing you're doing good. Oh, well, I hope so, because that was pretty embarrassing. I don't know if you can hear, but I am sharing the studio with a flock of seagulls who have flown in from the Bosphorus, and they have strong opinions about everything, probably including Bitcoin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I I believe uh, they're big stackers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they needed Bitcoin because um, where would they store their wealth, the migrants? Absolutely. Here's an interesting fact, too. 100% of the seagull population is unbanked. (laughs) 100%, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, well... Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on my end. It's Saturday, July 9th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always, remotely, with me, Chris, on the other end of the world, where it's the morning. It's lovely. I I think it's Saturday over here. I'm not sure what day it is. We're in some sort of weird Bitcoin time paradox. We should probably just all just decide on one universal time and just get this all sorted with. Well, that is what Linux does, right? Everything defaults to, I want to say, UTF or something. UTC, right? Although I think we could probably all agree to some sort of blockchain-based timeline is what I was thinking. You know, TikTok, another block. That's the Corey Klippenstein thing, right? Corey's always saying TikTok, another block. I like it. You could base a whole time system around that. So we're uh, we're currently live at this block time. Yeah, actually, that would be cool. I think other shows do that, maybe. But it would just mean keeping Clark Moody's dashboard up the whole time. <laughs> exactly. For today's episode, we are going to discuss debunking the stock to flow model. We're going to wade into the Bitcoin culture wars with a discussion of Nick Carter's critique of Bitcoin maximalism and also read Pete Rizzo's rebuttal. In economics, we have Arthur Hayes' latest blog post, which touches on Three Arrows Capital and the crypto lending crash. We have a economic research paper linking ETFs to lower wages. Kind of interesting. Then in our tokenomics section, the Central African Republic has already decided to create their own altcoin. Gosh, didn't see that coming. Do I sound sarcastic? <laughs> didn't see that one coming. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, boy. And guess what? It's tokenized around natural resources, too. So what could go wrong there? Oh, right. That's such a great idea. I, no one's ever thought of that before. Oh, wait. Venezuela did. And then in privacy, we have some news about buying people's exchange accounts. The Chinese total surveillance police state is more of a mess than you think. And then we have a little section on the Cato Institute and how inflation reduces financial privacy. For our energy section, we have a International Energy Agency report on nuclear energy that I thought was kind of interesting. But today's episode is really going to be mainly focused on education. We have a lot of lightning resources. I thought we would do a review of the lightning network and how it works. And then Blockstream just came out with a really interesting uh, announcement about a new Schnorr signature aggregation proposal which apparently works already. Sorry. 
those birds are just going crazy. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. They save it for when we started. Like, they were completely quiet for the last yeah. three hours. And then we'll have some feedback and boosts. Uh, the best part of the show. I'm actually really looking forward to talking a little bit about the stock to flow model because this was really getting a lot of attention when I was getting interested in Bitcoin again and like a like starting to relearn it from not just like, a, oh, it's cool from like a technology standpoint, but actually understanding it from a money standpoint. And this guy named Plan B on Twitter was going on about, you know, 100,000 by the end of the year and the stock to flow model. And it never, ever ringed accurate to me. It might have been in part because he ripped off my podcast name. But and that's why I was just skeptical of the guy. I mean, full disclosure could have been that I never gave it much credit. Well, you mentioned that Plan B was a bit shady in how he presented the model and how he would go back and change the predictions and try to fit it to actual data after the fact, right? Not only would he do that, but he also would really kind of poorly handle any kind of criticism uh, or when anybody noticed that he had made a change, he would ban them. He would really kind of just unload on them. So that was always kind of also a, kind of a red flag because those very kind of models are probably the thing that need the most robust kind of discussion because you can lead yourself down a path of confirmation bias with a model, especially one that you're creating yourself, one you're presenting, and then you know, one you're protecting. Yeah. I mean, you have to be be very humble and open to feedback if you're going to try and model complicated systems. And I have to admit, this is sort of a mea culpa, but I didn't question the stock to flow model enough when I first encountered it. I think one of the first pieces of writing I did about Bitcoin was I wrote a research report for a group of investors and I mentioned the stock to flow model. The reason I did that was mainly because it was like, we have a model now. We finally have a model. And that was the, the story. But when I looked at it before, especially when he... So there are two stock-to-flow models, right? There's the original stock-to-flow model, and then there's this cross-asset stock-to-flow model. And the original stock-to-flow model always seemed a bit BS to me, mainly because it didn't include demand in the model. And clearly, demand for Bitcoin is changing over time. And that's probably the greatest driver of changes in price. But this model didn't include demand or didn't even attempt to address that. It sort of assumed that just the stock, the amount of units, and then the flow, the number of new units, this is like some absolute system to create pricing for stuff, for commodities. And then Plan B created this cross-asset model, which included like Bitcoin, gold, and silver, and like diamonds, which is just so stupid because diamonds are a really problematic, manipulated market, including those in your model is like... Was kind of dumb in my from my perspective. This article in Bitcoin Magazine actually really debunks it quite cleanly. And essentially, the problem fundamentally is that the model auto correlates. There is the same term on the X and Y axis, and this will just essentially give you a line that goes up and to the right because price is included, you know, on both axes. And so, when you've got the same term and you're doing a linear regression, you're just correlating to yourself. So you're going to create a relationship, but it's a false one. Yeah, and this goes back to that not accepting feedback, even though he'd publicly say, oh yeah, no, I'll totally take feedback. But then of course there wouldn't be any. I think this speaks to a issue that I have been having a bit of schadenfreude watching as the bear market has rolled on. We have watched a series of quote unquote crypto lenders shut down access to accounts. Voyager just announced a bankruptcy. Celsius has been struggling for its life for a month. There's just all kinds of things like Vald just had to shut down. And I watched so many of these Bitcoin influencers on Twitter and YouTube quietly remove these different logos from their streams and from their links as these different companies would announce that they were insolvent and that you could no longer get access to your funds. 
companies that some of them have been promoting for a year, year and a half daily. And there's just no credibility. And Plan B got credibility because he took a great name and he went on Twitter and he said things people wanted to say. And he, he had a nickname for himself that was essentially a, a former industrial investor. A, uh, yeah, that's what he called himself. A, a, quote, former institutional investor with 25 years of experience in financial markets. And people just took him at his word because they take it's on the Internet, apparently. Like they someone just take it for their word. Well, he wrote it. So it must be true. He said it on a YouTube video. He said it in a podcast. So it must be true. He told everyone what they wanted to hear, which is it creates a confirmation is- bias, I think. Bitcoin's going to a million and here's this guy and he has some, you know, secret, but like presumably elite pedigree. So believe me, bro. Yeah. And I think Twitter too plays a role here. Part of the Bitcoin community, if you could call it that, although it's it's not really a community in, in so much, in so many ways, but the part that is generating charts and going to conferences and going on podcasts and going on YouTube videos and going on CNBC, they're all on Twitter and they're all kind of talking to each other and they want to influence each other. And there's... there's there's a real there's a real opportunity during a bear market for a narrative to build. And I think the thing that I've learned over the years is when everyone's talking about something in Bitcoin, like look look where what else is going on? Like usually once everybody has figured something out, <laughs> there's an issue at that point. Like look look at other areas in Bitcoin and see figure out what else is going on. And that's that's what I was doing in November, but that same group on Twitter was just going hyperbolic, you know, 100,000 here we come, here we come. I mean, this leads nicely into our next story, which is about Nick Carter and his uh, article on the critique of Bitcoin maximalism. Nick is another one of these Bitcoin Twitter financial guys. And what happened was Nick uh, works for or runs a VC firm called Castle Island Ventures, and they invest in a lot of stuff, including a lot of altcoin Web3 uh, stuff that I personally think seems a bit silly. But as Nick has pointed out, the Bitcoin space is not large enough to deploy sufficient capital into if you're a VC. And so if you want to be a VC and you want to do Bitcoin, you're going to also end up doing a lot of crypto. And I think that kind of speaks to a problem, maybe. Maybe you agree with me that in a certain sense, crypto is peak fiat. It's almost this industry that grew up to absorb investment. It doesn't really do anything, doesn't really provide any value, but it absorbs a lot of investment. So what happened was news broke that Nick had invested in a company that does some sort of wallet-based sign-on. And it was like Twitter discovered that Nick, who's been on TV and defended Bitcoin's proof of work and had like great debates where he debated um, Mike Green once, I think on Macro Voices. It was this fantastic debate. Mike Green just comes off as like such a nutcase when contrasted with uh, Nick. But Nick is not a Bitcoin purist. He's not a maximalist. And the Twitter mob came after him and he got quite defensive. And he wrote this quite well-written critique of maximalism and discussing his Bitcoin chops and sort of his views. And it's interesting, right? Because I think that on the show, we kind of talk about Bitcoin maximalism as like, yeah, of course we're Bitcoin maximalists. But thinking about it, I'm not sure I like the label because it was actually coined by Vitalik. And the implication was that Bitcoiners didn't like Ethereum simply because it wasn't Bitcoin. They're Bitcoin maximalists. I think it was a a label to kind of obscure the fact that Bitcoiners didn't like Ethereum because there was a pre-mine and there's a centralized group that could controls it. And it just seems a bit unfair. Yeah, I was actually thinking about the term this week, too, because this 
piece that Nick wrote on Medium has kicked off a robust conversation across the entire internet. Anywhere there's a Bitcoin form, uh, this is being discussed right now. And I think in part, this is so intense because during this crash, people who are Bitcoin maximalists would call themselves that are feeling very vindicated. They're feeling like we called all of this. We told you these things were a scam. We warned you about this. If you were just staying humble and stacking sats and building, none of this would have been a problem. You know, that kind of attitude right now. So for one of their own to come out as an altcoiner when they're all feeling like clearly this is the time that Bitcoin maximalism was proven right. I think it was just met with a lot of intense response. And I think what Nick articulates is a perfectly valid world where you could argue there'll be multiple technologies and the, the Bitcoin space probably won't be large enough to absorb the money that comes in. Assuming money printer turn back on and go burr. Yeah, there is so much money out there. That's, I think, something we struggle to understand, especially because to me, a few thousand dollars seems like a lot of money. So I think we struggle people like myself struggle to understand just how much money is out there and how much money needs to go somewhere. I don't like VCs very much, I have to say, even though I have some friends that are VCs. Nothing personal. I just think it's not a very healthy system. And I think you look at Horowitz and some of the others out there and the way they can make money on things and run or like the A16 guys, like the way they can essentially make money on something that never really delivers. So I think there's a lot of pushback on it. And I do agree with a lot of it, but I don't know if I like the term maximalist because it just really feels like pragmatism. I've researched Cordana. I've researched Solana. I've looked into Ethereum. I've considered Polkadot. I've thought maybe Loopring looks interesting. I've looked into all of them and I've ultimately come to the conclusion that none of them are a sound store of value. None of them are hard money and none of them are a fundamental market changer. None of them are TCP IP, right? They're net buoy, they're IPX, they're decent at what they do, but they're specialized and they're purpose built. Bitcoin is TCP IP, right? It is the network and it is also the operating system. It's, it's TCP IP and Linux at the same time. And that is going to fundamentally change the world, right? These other things are not. So I don't know if maximalism is the right term, but pragmatism, and there is a bit of one, literally has the ability to change the world. It just depends how far we take it. If we make it a reserve currency for the world, you know, it could fundamentally restructure politics or maybe it just turns out to be something like gold that rich people hold, but it builds new generational wealth for the middle class, for people who are stacking right now. That'd still be a good thing, right? But it just doesn't change the world. But NFTs and pay-to-play games, they're never going to change the world like changing the reserve currency could. So there is a bit of like, let's not mess around too much. Let's stay focused on the end goal here. Let's not divide our attention 20,000 different ways. Well, Nick might disagree with you on NFTs. He's bullish on NFTs. There are a couple of things going on here. Our views are kind of determined by our incentives, and Nick's a venture capitalist, so he kind of has to believe that all of this other stuff has some value. Because if he didn't, he couldn't do his job. I think another issue is that whatever Bitcoin maximalism means, it's kind of a populist movement or a populist ideology, kind of anti-elite. And Nick is an elite. His father works at the World Bank. He has, uh, you know, impeccable academic and professional credentials. He worked at Fidelity. In many ways, he's kind of not a pleb in a certain sense. I think there's also an element of problematic behavior with maximalists on Twitter who are brigading Nick. Ganging up on people on Twitter is not a productive activity. It's bullying. Yeah, I don't know if it's political, to be honest with you. I think it's more of a religious thing. So I'm really going to step in it. But I think there is a evangelical group who are really serious about Bitcoin 
And to them, it's nearly a religion. And so to them, it is a good use of their time to attack somebody who is promoting what they would consider to be crap coins because it maybe eliminates one more crap coiner and it keeps the world focused. Like to them, that is a good use of their time. Or it's a a form of devotion. They're radical about it. They're demonstrating their faith. There's also the establishing each other in the peer pecking group. You know, you see when somebody else jumps in and you know, oh, look at him. He's really going to fight. There's a bit of that as well. And then what I find fascinating is there is now a kind of a marketing to maximalists, people who are selling goods and services to people that consider themselves Bitcoin maxis. And so they want to be seen on Twitter being a maximalist because it brings customers in. Frankly, it seems a little goofy to me because I guess I just don't see posting on social media as a particularly productive activity. And yeah, I agree. If you want to do something for Bitcoin, like, I don't know, have a meetup, learn more, contribute. Right. Right. You know, build a real community, not this sort of uh, online echo chamber. Go do some QA testing for Sparrow Wallet or something. Right. Right. Go submit a bug report for a project. And at the end of the day, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Nick Carter has done more for Bitcoin than 99.9% of the people who were giving him a hard time on Twitter. Just look at his website. I mean, this guy has written so much on Bitcoin. And yeah, he touches on other things too. At the same time, what you'll find is that a lot of OG Bitcoiners would not pass the purity tests of the Twitter maximalists today. You know, Jameson Locke, he's another guy, serious OG Bitcoiner, CTO of Casa but this guy's just into technology. And you can't tell Nick or Jameson or anybody what they're allowed to be interested in, right? I think the issue is, are they promoting something that seems like a financial scam? And if, it, if that's not the case, they seem to have a professional and upfront and honest sort of disclosures around what they're doing. Fine, go forth, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like that's the line is, are they promoting scams or not? And I have two thoughts here. One, what is value, right? Take something like Cordana, it's proof of stake out of the gate. It really feels like it's purpose built to interoperate with government regulations and requirements and with business uses and requirements. And it's almost designed from the very beginning for that. And that's not going to ever be potentially a reserve currency of the world, but it will be valuable to some company, to some IBM type company, right? It's So we got to also kind of remember that there's going to be different industry use cases and maybe they don't end up as currencies on the internet, but they still have some use. We'll see. But the other thing that really I can't help but just get deja vu from is how this really reminds me of the Linux community and how volatile it was in the late 90s and in the early aughts and how people would just go after each other on forums and in IRC. And it could be over silly things like desktop or distro or web browser. You know, in the case, I was just thinking Nick almost a little bit here, although it's not a, it's not a fair equivalent because Lenart Pottering was a developer, but Lenart Pottering was a well-known individual in the Linux community. And he's just gotten decades of abuse, essentially, for introducing Pulse Audio and SystemD. And uh, he just recently announced that, well, he didn't really announce it, but the world discovered that he's moving to Microsoft. And now there's a whole nother way wave of discussion around that. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, Lenart's probably done more for Linux than most Linux users will ever do. But he still just is the constant target of criticism because there's that evangelical aspect of a community. And then taking the other side of this whole debate is Pete Rizzo. And so Pete wrote an article kind of talking about the different flavors of Bitcoin maximalism quite recently. He kind of takes the maximalist side because Rizzo's point is that the crypto industry is this sort of worst of Wall Street exercise. It's almost universally a scam. And so in Rizzo's view, maximalism is a rejection of this kind of degenerate financial shenanigans of crypto. And I see that point. I think that's a very simple and satisfying 
worldview, you know, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. I think I generally agree with it. I guess where I draw the line is there are complicated people, right? You know, Nick is complicated in the sense that he's done so much for Bitcoin, in my opinion, but also he is interested in goofy Web3, whatever. So I think you need to not be extreme in your treatment of people who have a bunch of different facets. That's all I can add, really. I agree. And I like this piece from Pete. I think he has essentially nailed it. And as somebody who has been around since before, Ethereum was a thing. And I, I remember when Ethereum came onto the scene, I was really annoyed because I felt like, and, and Litecoin too for a bit, but then there's the whole gold-silver conversation. But Ethereum was the one that really annoyed me because it's like, okay, here we go. We're going to do this Linux thing where we're going to have a thousand different distros and we're going to have people fracture their work across. And I just, I became immediately annoyed with it from that. And I could see if somebody's been around for a long time, I could see that kind of growing into a maximalism kind of attitude about things. Yeah, my only critique of Rizzo is why does he keep publishing his stuff on Forbes? Yeah, Forbes has got to go. Do not trust anything that place puts right. out. Because it just seems like if you're going to the trouble of putting it on there, you're trying to like legitimize yourself. And Pete doesn't need it. I mean, Pete's a legitimate journalist. Yeah, he is legitimizing Forbes. People definitely try to brand surf off of Forbes because so many people don't know. But anyone really can write for them now. And they don't check things. They just let anybody publish anything. It's a very low bar. Yeah, I mean, even Caitlin Long is like, oh yeah, my article on Forbes. But with Caitlin, I almost feel like she's a maybe a different generation. And so for her, like Forbes is a big deal still and she hasn't gotten the oh yeah the news. oh yeah it still matters to a certain generation too you know a generation uh, a little bit older that brand really holds a lot of cachet still i have personally seen somebody who was a contract writer that got paid peanuts from forbes to just crank out blog spam i saw doors get open because they simply had forbes in their bio and nobody understood the background right but it opens up doors for sure it's little things like that little biases that people don't even challenge and brand is such a strong one. Should we move on to Arthur? I mean, speaking of some big brands. So Arthur's latest article, again, there's some problems with it in my view, but it's interesting if you want a kind of insider view to Three Arrows Capital, because Arthur knows both Kyle Davies and Suzu, who were the two principals at 3AC. And Arthur does not dwell on the fraud that 3AC likely committed, because apparently Voyager lent Three Arrows Capital $600 million of Bitcoin. And and it was unsecured. And so the question sort of becomes, what did they show Voyager to convince them to lend them that money? Like they probably showed them something fake some fake documentation, potentially. If you're interested in the 3AC crash and like the mechanics of it, this is definitely worth a read. And the TLDR is that Kyle and Suzu are basically currency arbitrage traders. And currency arbitrage, it's kind of like a mechanical trading strategy where they're picking up pennies on currency fluctuations. And so it's a natural strategy to use in the crypto markets. But the issue with this kind of ARB trading is that it's capital intensive because you need to basically have money on every exchange so that you can do this. And it's also not particularly profitable because you're just arbitraging. You're always making some difference between two prices, but it's relatively risk-free, I think. Not that anything is, but relatively. Now, what happened with 3AC is they essentially, I guess, got tired of making consistent returns and wanted to swing to the fences. 
And there's something in this article that is a little different from what I'd heard previously. So what I'd heard previously is that the trade that wrecked 3AC initially and turned them from guys taking a slightly risky strategy to, oh my God, we got wrecked and now we need to go like full Ponzi crazy to make up the difference. Initially, I had heard that they got on the wrong side of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust cash and carry trade. And that was a trade where you essentially like borrowed money, bought Bitcoin, put the Bitcoin into the GBDC trust, and then you got GBDC shares and these shares were trading at a premium. And so you, you made like 20% on your Bitcoin and it was relatively risk-free until it wasn't because then that premium turned into a negative. And, you know, and when that sort of premium went negative, everyone who was on the wrong side of that trade suddenly took big losses. So that's what I'd heard initially. But in this article, Arthur says that it was probably Terra Luna that wrecked 3AC, that they were essentially YOLOing into the anchor protocol and getting that sweet 20% return. Wow. I mean, you'd think that smart traders would be like, oh, 20% return. Where does this come from? But they were just like, YOLO, let's do it. <laughs> You know, that's what actually kind of surprises me, sort of. They were really just degenning this stuff. Um, all the way down, it was turtles. Like Three Arrows Capital existed before the crypto market took off, but they kind of retooled to degen into all this different stuff. And did they all get drunk? Like when I'm thinking of Three Arrows, I'm also thinking of Voyager and Celsius. And did they all just think it was going to continuously go up? Like they all thought the stock to flow model was legit. When I look at an institution, I think, oh, that they're an institution. So they're planning for bear and bull markets. But it's almost like they all thought it was going to be perpetually bull. It's weird because... Because it always happens. Everyone thinks that this time it's different and that they're the smart people who won't get hoodwinked. And then they make the same old mistakes and they go directional long and then the market turns against them. And then they're scrambling and they just pile on more and more risk and until it blows up. And this is exactly how retail traders get wrecked. I guess there's some schadenfreude of satisfaction that the pros also get wrecked in the same way. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> now, to kind of change the mood a little, there's this economic paper I found on SSRN, which is this place where you can read academic papers for free. The title is Shareholder Power and the Decline of Labor. And I was kind of thinking about this subject because I subscribe to Matt Levine's Bloomberg newsletter, which is just really uh, an enjoyable read. And Matt is a lawyer who kind of follows financial markets. And one thing that he's posted on before is this weird situation where you have companies that own shares in everything and how if you own shares in every company in the world, suddenly you don't want them to act in their own best interest. Because if you own shares in every company, then when one company does better, it's at the expense of another company, right? I was thinking about that and how weird that logic is and how actually maybe the concentration of shares and financial wealth somehow breaks capitalism and breaks markets in a way that we hadn't anticipated. And then I saw this paper. And essentially, the conclusion is, yeah, when you have ETFs holding shares in all of these different companies, if you think about it, the ETF is a common owner of all of these companies in one sector. And so now you don't want one company to poach talent from another company by raising wages, right? Because actually, you're just reducing the performance of your ETF. And so it creates these weird, perverse little incentives 
wages, the kind of uh, suppress wages. Does that make sense the way I describe it? It does. And I can't believe I've never even thought of that because it seems kind of obvious that it creates reverse incentives and you kind of want a status quo in a way. They write that when they centralize shareholder power, it relocates rent away from the workers. Their results imply that the rise in concentrated institutional ownership could explain about a quarter of the secular decline in the aggregate labor share. A quarter? That's huge. And essentially, I guess they're saying that the value is going to shareholders instead of to payroll. Yeah. And then combine that with globalization, the petrodollar system, China joining the WTO, and you get the rest of the labor wage shortfall. Well, and if you peel the onion one more layer, isn't it all the Fed's fault in a way? Because the money spigot has been going and the uh, banks are closest to that spigot and they have been directing that money into assets like stocks. And so companies are going to respond to that incentive because that's where the money's coming in. In a way, it's just the market responding to the money hose. Financialization in general. In the United States, it seems like the real activity is issuing company shares and playing games with how many shares you issue and yes, like the kind of financial side of every business. Whereas the core business, making widgets or making cars or whatever, seems less important than this share financial speculative side. So I feel like that's the... It's a fiat money sickness. And it's in a way, it's maybe not a breakdown of capitalism as so much as it is as poisoning the money supply in the capital system, right? Maybe that's... Is that more of a... Like it's the fiat money that has wrecked the market's ability to actually properly operate. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. At the same time, you know, the ETF is a really clever idea. It's this tool that theoretically diversifies and provides easy diversification for big and small investors. That said, this actually kind of touches on the work of Mike Green. He's a guy who used to work for Peter Thiel and pretty famous for being anti-Bitcoin, but his investors, because he runs some kind of investment fund, they got so annoyed about not having like access to you know Bitcoin's high performance that he sort of had to change his tune a little, I think. But Mike um, has this theory that ETFs are a great idea if the market has relatively few ETFs and they almost have a reverse network effect like solar energy or something. Because if you think about the market as like an oil tanker going through the ocean and the ETF is like a little sailboat coasting in its wake, that's a healthy situation because the ETF is dumb money. Money flows into the ETF, it buys stocks. When money flows out, it sells stocks. It's just, it's not being clever. But if the market is made up of traders and people who have opinions about the future, some are right, some are wrong, but you know the market kind of comes to consensus and then the ETF can follow the market. But what if we reverse those relative sizes And now the ETF is the oil tanker and the active traders and hedge funds, they're like little sailboats and dolphins floating in the wake of the oil tanker. Now the market's being steered by dumb money and our assumptions about, you know, markets being able to kind of distill information and discover accurate prices, this fails if the ETF is the biggest game in town. And so it's interesting that there are other knockdown effects on labor, but I think that this um, ETFs and financial markets uh, phenomenon is potentially problematic. Yeah, that is a that is a powerful visual. It really does kind of put it in perspective. And it, it is just it's a simple in out money thing. It's not a precision buying based on research and fundamentals. And that is interesting. And ETFs are so wildly popular. I, I can't believe it. I really never really got that far into stocks. But over the last year, just with the market going crazy, I started trying to learn a bit more about it and uh, understanding more about ETFs. And I just could there's an ETF for everything. <laughs> it's just there's inflation ETFs that are designed to do well in inflation, right? There's there's going to be a Bitcoin ETF one day. There's ETFs for everything. Are you getting music there? Are you getting music in the background? 
It's the call to prayer. Ah. We get that five times a day so that you can go to the mosque and pray. So you get to hear that five times a day, huh? That'd be hard to podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty challenging. <laughs> I mean, this city is really bonkers. Is it? It's like 5,000 years old. And if you dig a hole in this city, you're going to make an archaeological discovery. You're just going to dig into another <laughs> layer of... Like, you know, a dead civilization or something. I both am glad I am not there, but also would love to see it. I've never, I don't think I've ever been a place that, to a place that old in my whole life. I mean, I guess the Redwood Forest in California. What a place to be for another month. What? Jeez, I can't even imagine being there for a month. Yeah, no, I'm actually just imagining you here and it would be ridiculous because you'd be like. Yeah, could you imagine me trying to do five or six shows a week from over there right you'd now? You'd lose it. Yeah, you totally lose it. Okay, so I think the call to prayer is over. All right. Which brings us to tokenomics. Now, how closely have you been following the Central African Republic? Just seen the headlines, actually. It was just enough to go, oh, no. Um, and I saw they did a big presentation, um, you know, a big video live stream announcing it. But I have not followed it much beyond that. After El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender, the next domino to fall was the Central African Republic. And if I was skeptical of things going well in El Salvador, the CAR just seemed like, oh my God, this is not going to work. So a bunch of Bitcoiners, I think from Galois maybe, went to meet with the government there and they have a report that we've linked to. And let's just go through their high level strengths and weaknesses of the CAR for Bitcoin. All right. So strength, favorable regulations, already use mobile money, only 5% of the population is banked. Okay, sounds promising. Weakness, access to electricity, access to internet, access to mobile phones, absence of education, need for an ID to buy a SIM card. Like, I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's not going to work. No, no. And uh, it's funny how they try to do this without the education part. And I have to wonder when you're doing it this way, what is the end goal? And I, I, is it maybe to actually just get outside money into the country to get Western travelers, to get money for elite in the country? Is it maybe that truly what the goal is here and not actually trying to get adoption? by every consumer and by, by people who are unbanked. Because, of course, you're going to need a phone. And if they have all these requirements, like an ID, to get a SIM card, well, if you have an ID and those require documents, you probably have a bank account. And, you know, the whole thing's just a mismatch. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, they seriously need better money and finance there because CAR is part of the CIFA franc program. That is the French colonial money program that keeps former French colonies poor and dependent on France. And so CIFA franc is not even freely convertible. I don't think you can like sell it for Bitcoin or dollars or anything. They have so many challenges there. Like like access to electricity in some areas? Yeah, I mean, access to any kind of money. And then on top of it, they've decided to launch their own coin called the Sango coin. Sango coin. And they launched it during the Sango Genesis event. Yeah. Gosh, that sounds very legitimate. Yeah, it was a low budget live stream video event. Event that was, you know, like the tech companies that used to try to copy the Apple keynotes uh, a decade ago and they were just embarrassingly bad. That's what it felt like. One of those like really bad ones. They were trying to seem cool. And, like the audience didn't know when to clap. In fact, when they announced the coin, there was like this really kind of awkward moment where no one, <laughs> no one clapped. <laughs> and then they realized they were supposed to start clapping. <laughs> 
Ouch. Well, there's not much more to the story. It was unlikely for the Central African Republic's Bitcoin adoption plan to work out, and it looks like it's not working out. Yeah, I mean, they claim they're going to do both Bitcoin and the Sango coin, and they want the Sango coin to act as a gateway to natural resources in the Central African Republic. So tokenizing their resources for private investors to speculate on is essentially what they want. And then I, I imagine, I don't know why, they, and then they're still recognizing Bitcoin, apparently in April, as an official currency. Um, but... Yeah, this isn't good. This isn't a good thing at all. We saw Miami coin and we've seen that go sideways. Austin was talking about creating a coin at first. So was New York but until Miami coin started going sideways. And I could see in another... Were these all on stacks? I can't remember. That's a good question. That's a, a, I think I think there were actually a couple of different ones. But ultimately, you have to imagine, in once another bear market's back and it's been back for a bit, we're probably going to see more of this. It's just too tempting for them. Well, on that positive note, let's talk about privacy. And the first story has to do with buying hacked credentials on the dark web. You gotta go on the dark web. Everybody loves the dark web. Have you ever gone and checked any of these out? Have you ever have you ever like uh, tried to buy any of these accounts before? I've looked, but I've never bought. Right. Well, I mean, if you had, you would have committed a crime. Research, my friend. Research. Yeah, I've certainly checked out these uh, markets. Like it's it's kind of fun because you just fire up Tor and then you find a like a dark web index site and then you click around and there's weird stuff on there. Like you can buy like a box of iPhones for 200 bucks each or something. But then you're like, well, where am I going to ship this? You know, you have to have like a whole infrastructure, I think, to to participate in that economy. Ooh, you can get a crypto.com account. Yeah. And what was kind of interesting is if um, so basically this article is a list of prices for things you can buy on the dark web. So you can buy a lot of Spotify followers for two dollars or you can buy a Kraken verified account for eight hundred and ten dollars or a PayPal account with money in it for. $340. So what's kind of interesting is that the crypto menu is a bit more expensive than the TradFi stuff. And I think that's basically because crypto is money. So if you buy a hacked account and you drain it, you immediately get money. Whereas with you know PayPal or something, you have to go through a couple of extra steps and it's possibly more risky to monetize that. Right. Yeah. It's more liquid. If I were the folks at Coinbase, I'd want to know why a Coinbase account goes for less than a Kraken account. Coinbase is only $610. Kraken's $810. I'd want to know why. My time when I was looking around on there, it was uh, after some service provider had been hacked. And I was just curious, you know, what kind of, what does that stuff go for? And you're right. There's so many bizarre things you can find on there. It's just the the range of things that people want to buy online is something else. But uh, you got to do something with that bag of Monero. <laughs> Lol. Now, our second privacy story is about the Chinese police state, which has recently leaked a billion citizens' personal details, as in a literal billion. So the leak includes names, home addresses, ID number, phone number, criminal records. Uh, so I linked to the original, this guy who dropped the story, uh, which was a Twitter post. But I think uh, since then, there's been a Bloomberg article about this. And apparently... Uh, this wasn't even a hack. The data was on a unsecured VPS. And so the hacker just accessed it over a year and downloaded, you know, a billion entries. And that suggests, of course, they had no kind of surveillance or monitoring at all. If he had a persistent connection for a year, that's massively embarrassing. A one-time exploit that takes advantage of a security vulnerability, maybe a zero day, they get in, they get the data and they publish it. I mean, that sucks, but it's understandable. But persistent connectivity over a year, that's massive negative. 
negligence. Yeah, and it just speaks to how mass surveillance weakens the security of citizens, and it's performed by a police state that has no accountability, and so they have no incentive to secure data very well because they suffer no consequences if it leaks. And I also link to an article about how another uh, data breach in China that leaked data about how the Chinese Communist Party is using surveillance to commit genocide against the Uyghurs. Not a very positive story, but it's fascinating because if anyone is on the fence about whether or not privacy matters, read this article about the Uyghurs because they kind of live in glass houses. You know, everything they do is observed and it's very easy for them to do something wrong because they're under such constant surveillance. And so the moment they do something that kind of triggers a flag, bad things start happening to them. Being incarcerated, pretty scary stuff. Yeah, I hope these kinds of leaks, I hope the positive outcome of a leak like this is that they have to do better. They have to be better at security, but also people become become more aware of the data that's being collected. Every kind of event like this raises a few more people's awareness and it all kind of contributes to people taking their privacy more seriously. And this is a massive one and it won't affect us in the West as much, but um, obviously it's going to affect a billion people in China. So hopefully there's accountability from this. Now, our next privacy story comes from a report from the Cato Institute. And my understanding is that the Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank. Yeah. This article is kind of a no-brainer, but it's nice to see someone thinking about inflation and financial surveillance critically. And the point they're making is, you know, since we have this $10,000 limit for suspicious activity reports or financial transactions in the U.S., as inflation rages, more and more transactions fall under the minimum reporting requirements. And so over time, more and more of our financial life has to be directly reported to regulators. Right. The report notes that that $10,000 threshold was set 50 years ago. If we were adjusted for inflation, that threshold would now be nearly $75,000 today. Holy crap. First of all, for some reason, that really feels like it puts inflation, you're like, it really makes me feel it. $10,000 turned into $75,000 sounds like a crazy crypto pump. (laughs) It just took 50 years. Uh, but that's a fascinating that's a fascinating problem that that ten thousand dollars becomes worth less and less and less. More and more people are going to hit that bar. More and more people are going to cross that threshold. It's not uncommon, you know, for a for a used, rundown car to be over ten thousand dollars now. Yeah, my best investment over the past couple of years was my minivan. Yeah, it's uh, outperformed everything. Isn't that funny? For a period of time, my RV was worth more than uh, it was years ago. I know I think that's now changing. And the same with my car. I got an offer from them, you know, we'll buy your car. Um, It's just crazy. The the way the inflation plus supply chain crunch has really impacted all that. And this 10,000, we're not done, right? This $10,000 limit or this bar, we're getting closer and closer to that being a lower and lower value today. And the inflation is still running hot and it will probably run hot for a long time. So this problem is just going to get worse for more and more people. And this is one of the many, many insidious ways that inflation fundamentally benefits the government. And it's done in a way that pretty much on the whole, nobody notices. Drives me crazy. It's doing its job because it's raising prices, it's pushing GDP up, and it's reducing uh, national debt as a fraction of GDP. Right. Very handy. And increasing surveillance. So, you know, win, win, win. I would not be surprised if 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 in the next 20 years, 10 years, we saw that $10,000 bar raised. Just if inflation becomes a hot political topic and people become more aware of it, I could see it being addressed. There'd have to be a motivating factor, of course, but it's not impossible for it to be revised upward. Yeah, it's possible. I linked to a couple other um, things from the Cato Institute. Just I happened to see a newsletter of theirs from 1998 that mentions um, Adam Back and the cypherpunks and is basically positive towards 
broad use of encryption for personal and financial privacy. And I thought that was nice because, you know, I think institutions like the Cato Institute definitely don't agree with all of their points of view, but it's nice to have people that are always pushing for privacy. And that reminded me, do you recall the Clipper chip in the 90s? The V-chip for violence? Oh, no, no. I'm thinking of the Clinton TV ship thing. Yeah. Yeah. This was the chip that the NSA wanted to put in every computer so that the U.S. government could backdoor encryption on every device in America. Right. Introduced in the early 90s. And uh, they want, yeah, right. And then I think, I think they gave up a few years later. Yeah. I mean, it's just a terrible idea. It's like putting a security hole in every device. And also, do we really trust that information to be used responsibly? And clearly not. The Clinton administration argued the Clipper chip was essential for law enforcement to keep up with the constantly progressing technology in the United States, as if that chip would not have been almost immediately outdated in how fast things were progressing back then. That's interesting. They also tried the V-chip back then, which was going to be like a violence detector for televisions, so that way children wouldn't get exposed to violence on TV. Oh, yes. I remember this now. Matt Blaze published a paper, The Protocol Failure in Escrow Encryption Standards, and he pointed out that the Clippers escrow system had a serious vulnerability. That killed it. I thought you were joking about the V-chip. I thought that was like a reference to um, Kingsman or something. No, it was the Clinton administration love this idea about putting chips and stuff to like make sure it didn't do this or that like they they just love that idea (laughs) odd which brings us to energy and i don't want to sound like a broken record or set you off but this is a report on nuclear energy by the international energy agency and it's kind of interesting because it, it gets into which countries are building nuclear reactors tldr only russia and china i think we had a discussion about how long it would take nuclear to get online to kind of eat some of oil and gas's lunch and get us to a cleaner energy mix My view is uh, we're very far away from that. And I would say that this report kind of uh, supports that view. Yeah, we're starting. But, but, and the report suggests this too, the trend may be our friend. And as we record a few days ago, the European Union voted to include nuclear energy in the renewable definition. That and also uh, natural gas. But that to me seems like a massively (laughs) popular, yeah. Of course. But I mean, that's a massively popular thing. If they're going to if now nuclear energy is defined as a renewable, then that means part of their focus on renewables can include nuclear and natural gas. That's a positive thing, I think. But it, it's only the, it's like the very beginning step before people are even going to start talking about investing money and building something. Yeah. Yeah, true. But um, it's an interesting read. Um, It gets into the geographical um, differences in nuclear deployment. And maybe this is a nerdy topic, but it's kind of a summary. So uh, there's some good charts in there. Of the 31 reactors that began construction in 2017, all but four are Russian and Chinese. 70% of the world's global capacity was advanced economies, but their investment has stalled. Yeah, this is really interesting. But overall, I think we could see a new dawn. I think it's just going to be about a decade. (laughs) Hey, this episode of Bitcoin Dad is brought to you by Office Hours. OfficeHours.hair is a podcast I do with my buddy Brent. We cover a lot of Jupiter Broadcasting community news, but the last two episodes, we've also featured individuals in the podcasting 2.0 space. I was going to say, yeah, they're both developers. They're both developers. Uh, Mitch, who's one of the co-founders of Podverse, a fantastic podcasting 2.0 app, was in episode six. And in episode seven, Alex Gates, the podcasting 2.0 consultant, joins me to talk about the improvements he's doing to PeerTube to make it work as a podcasting platform and live streams in podcasting apps. So go to officehours.hair to find out more and subscribe.
So for this week's Bitcoin education, I heard a couple questions on Twitter regarding Lightning Network and just sort of how it works. And I kind of got the feeling that we might be at the point where we've thought about it so much that it just makes sense to us and we risk losing the ability to explain it to people who haven't grokked it yet. So I thought we could link to some Lightning resources, but then there's a good primer on the Lightning Network that was written by Elizabeth Stark. And there are no pictures, but it kind of defines it very cleanly. Let me just read the first paragraph. Imagine if every computer had to store every email to receive any. That's how blockchains work. Lightning Network allows computers to make blockchain transactions, only storing the data they care about, their own money. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Lightning Network. Yeah. And I think the other really useful bit that she touches on in here that's a useful way to think about Lightning is what problem is Lightning solving? And we talk about it all the time. You, you know, a blockchain generally to be secure has to be decentralized and that means slow. So Lightning was really about scalability and improving the speed of transactions. So that way you could really use it at like a point of sales kiosk which is why I think there's also been a real focus on, on mobile applications for Lightning. And that, I think, when you understand what it was trying to solve, helps you kind of work your way into reading and understanding more about Lightning. And what it's actually doing on the Bitcoin network is it's just making a special kind of Bitcoin transaction. Chris and I, we do a lot of business, so it makes sense for us to uh, open a Lightning channel. And so I can take a Bitcoin and I can take Chris's Lightning public key and I can combine it with my public key to create a two of two multi-sig address. Then I'm going to send the Bitcoin into this address. And now you might think, man, why'd you do that? Like now Chris kind of controls your Bitcoin too. Like, isn't that risky? Well, not really, because I created a redemption transaction as well. So I can unilaterally redeem that Bitcoin if I want. But now uh, we have this address and there's a Bitcoin in there and Chris and I both control it. And using the Lightning Protocol, I can now send him fractions of this Bitcoin. And we basically update our redemption transactions. So in the first, when I open the channel, I have a redemption transaction for one Bitcoin. But then I send half a Bitcoin to Chris, and we update the channel state. And now I have a redemption transaction for half a Bitcoin. Chris has a redemption transaction for half a Bitcoin. And we can just do this, you know, basically forever. It's a good way to understand it. And that Bitcoin will live in that agreement until those channels close. And those channels are two basically agreements between two parties to create a two out of two multi-signature transaction that's on the blockchain. And then when you close the channel, those channels finalize on the blockchain. Lightning scales because if I have a channel open with Chris and Chris has a channel open with Dominic, I can actually reach Dominic by piggybacking across these two channels. And that's pretty interesting because it means that we don't have to have a one-to-one -one connection with every user. We can just connect to a couple key nodes and access most of the network. But that does mean that there are liquidity constraints, right? Because maybe Chris and I have a nice big channel of one Bitcoin, but maybe Chris and Dominic only have a 1 million Satoshi channel. So it's 100th the size of my channel to Chris. And so anything I want to send to Dominic would be limited by the size of that final channel. And this is an area you sometimes have to juggle. If you're running a lightning node that has some sats flowing in and out, you will you'll end up having sats at one end of the channel. And there's several ways to fix that, but it can be tricky, especially if you're traveling and you forget to do something before you go. Like now, before I leave, I go through and I check the channels on my node because I don't want it to run out of liquidity on one side of the channel while I'm, you know, away. It's that kind of stuff. And there are services to help manage it. There's scripts. The community is always building open source code as well. Um, so there's more and more ways to make it easier. 
We've also linked to Jameson Lopp's excellent page of lightning resources, which includes links to several videos that can provide a more graphical explanation of the lightning network and many more articles and lists of wallets and node software too. So it's quite an exhaustive resource if you want to check that out. A great way to really, and I'm not just saying this, but a great way to really kind of get hands-on experience with Lightning is to send a boost into the show because you go through the process of onboarding onto the Lightning network to do that. Yep, you can always boost using a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain.fm, Podverse, or Castomatic. Mm-hmm. Or Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z dot technology, and then you don't have to switch podcast apps. Uh, right. Now, Blockstream recently released an article about half aggregation of BIP340 signatures. This is pretty complex, but it's interesting for a couple reasons. So 340, BIP340 signatures are Schnorr signatures, and Schnorr signatures are cool because they are additive as opposed to the original ECDSA signatures that Bitcoin was launched using. Schnorr signatures can be added up so that you can take a bunch of signatures and combine them. However, it turns out that this aggregation of signatures is complicated, and we haven't quite figured out how to do it particularly well. Now, Blockstream has made some progress in this problem space, and they have something called half aggregation, which means that they can take Snore signatures and they can basically combine them, and then the result is half as long as all of the signatures. So it's not like the magic we thought Taproot would immediately provide. That's further down the road. Because we thought, you know, with Taproot, you could take a million signatures, put them together, and it's just like one signature. Wow, magic. But with half aggregation, you could take a million signatures, put them together, and you'd get 500,000 signatures of length, essentially. It's a good first step. It is a good reminder that these things take a long time. And when we were talking about Lightning earlier, Lightning came out on the scene years, pretty much right after the block size wars, Lightning came around. And it took until really 2021 until we saw serious deployment on the Lightning network. And in 2022, we're still seeing it really still grow and deploy. It's still growing. And uh, I suppose Taproot and integrating it fully and utilizing it in different ways is going to be the same thing. It's going to be years. Another interesting thing about this proposal is that Blockstream is very keen on mathematical specification of proposals. And so they've kind of specified this signature aggregation scheme in such a way that they think they can create formal proofs to demonstrate that it works. And this is, you know, this is kind of nerdy, but that's Blockstream for you. But having formal proofs for cryptographic standards is uh, really the holy grail of building secure cryptography. And uh, they have a nice section in the article talking about how they essentially are using computer-aided proof construction. So somehow they're using a, a special programming language and some tools so that they have little programs grinding away to try and find the formal proof to uh, the security of this proposal. Very nerdy. Good for them. And uh, also, this is the part I care about. They note here at the end that they'd like feedback about the absence of a Python reference implementation and adding a formal specification written in Hackspec. They think it's a promising direction that has the potential to advance the robustness of the Bitcoin ecosystem significantly. So I think there's, it feels like that to me indicates there's some bigger conversation going on in the background right now about Python and its viability long-term in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Oh, I didn't catch that. I just know that they're very keen on formal specification 
because that's a big part of um, their new scripting language. I can see that. And so stop making examples in Python and use this instead. And that kind of like move us forward, take us beyond just a Python view of everything. Python's great because you can basically read it. It's like very readable, but I understand that it has a lot of drawbacks, which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch via email, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. Now, I haven't received any emails this week, so we will go directly to Boos. And unfortunately, again, we are reading Boos like an animal via the fountain.fm app. Hopefully that'll be fixed by next week, but we shall see. So our first boost is from True Grits, 3000 sats. I would love to come and see you two sometime. I rarely make it to Seattle. I'm a Spokaneite but I occasionally make it out for a concert or something. I enjoy my Monero node slash mining, and I'm looking forward to my 2.0 setup I'm planning right now. Currently, I run it on my main rig, so anytime I want to use it, I have to turn off the mining. However, 2.0 will be a dedicated node rig that I'll always have running, with mining also set up on that. I love randomly checking on it throughout the day. Smiley face. It is like a little pet. True Grits, that's a neat idea. We could totally have a Bitcoin meetup at the studio. When a guy's got a name like True Grits, I feel like we should do some grilling too. That's totally possible. I met the Bitcoin dad at a JB meetup here at the studio. Yeah, that's true. And the Bitcoin dad is famous for his baby back ribs. So that could work. (laughs) Our next boost comes from Ibuki, 2100 sats. Thanks for the show. I would like to see more sources cited in the show notes and on air, especially for controversial topics like energy. Hey, thanks for the feedback. Let us know what you think about this episode. I feel like we have quite a few sources in the show notes. Our next boost is from PLTRENT. I'm not going to try to pronounce that who boosted in 2,100 sats and said, enjoy the show. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you, sir. We also got a boost from ItGuy005 of 706 sats. Thank you. IT guy, I think. Oh, Oh, IT guy. Right. And then True Grits boosted in again with 300 sats to say, oh, and also I love how the show notes look much better now. Don't know uh, if that change was on your end or on Fountain's, but it looks good. Double boost. Yeah, double boost. And it was on Fountain's end. They always look good on our website, just not on Fountain. But it's fixed now, which I'm very grateful for, because same with JB shows, we have extensive show notes. And for that to get cut off, it's like a big loss. So I'm great. it's great to see that fixed. Very glad. And then we got a boost from Scott Wolf for 100 sats. Love the show. One of my new... Go-to resources for reliable info and analysis regarding Bitcoin and macroeconomics slash social commentary. Boost from the wolf. Okay, not too many boosts. It's possible some of them might not be caught by the Fountain app. I've noticed that. So if, if they've been missed... We apologize. I got a couple of brainstorm ideas that uh, we can uh, we can ponder after the show, I suppose. Oh, so we have some boosts from the Helium episode. So Patar sent us 10,000 sats. Thanks, Patar. Uh, Patar, sorry. Mega boost there. And then um, Cass Peelin sent us 3690 sats, again, using that number. And he writes, nice to know that the Smurfs are into Bitcoin, too. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, we it sounded yeah. like Smurfs in that episode. No, I think Papa Smurf would be a Bitcoiner, don't you? And oh, Smurfette. 100%. Yeah. A Gargamel, for sure. He was a gold bug. Yeah, I could see that. I was kind of thinking that, or he'd be into Ethereum. I mean, you know how he is. Yeah, that is true. He has up to the scams. Maybe Luna. <laughs> and then we had a boost of 2,000 sats from uh, Zemetisk. Boosting so that you don't ever do this again, smiley, laughy, sat, uh, crying face. The squeaky voice was a pain to listen to while doing hard labor in the sun. Gargoyle. Oh, man. Well, 
Oh my god, I'm sorry you you've had to listen to that. I yeah. I released a, another episode that had corrected the problem, but so many of them download it, automatically, you know. But that is the nicest way to get that feedback is via a boost. It's it's like it helps the medicine go down. Oh, for sure. It went down so smooth. Thank, thanks again. Okie dokie. And then yeah, I think that's it for the boost we've got available. Well, thank you everybody. Pew pew. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm also giving a special shout out these days to Boost CLI. If you want to take your geekiness level to the to the ultimate max, you can boost from the command line. It's pretty awesome. Boost CLI for that. And then, of course, I mentioned Breeze earlier. Breeze has got a lot going on. I mean, there's like a lot of development. It's going to be an interesting app to watch. And right now they're working on like a slim lightning node that you run locally. So you are self-custodian all of your sats. And that's kind of neat. B-R-E-E-Z dot technology. And then you can add the pod in there and send a boost. Yep, very cool. And that's it for our show. So thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Saturday, July 9th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with me, Chris. It's Chris. See you next time.